0: You're listening to Life of the Record, classic albums told by the people who made them. My name is Dan Nordheim. Van Dyke Parks was born in Hattiesburg, Mississippi in 1943. After growing up studying music and working as a child actor, he moved to Los Angeles, California. He began performing in folk groups around town and ended up arranging the Bare Necessities for Disney's The Jungle Book. He recorded singles for MGM Records and worked as a session musician for producer Terry Melcher, who later introduced him to Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys. Parks was hired as a lyricist for the Beach Boys' Smile album, but became disillusioned with the project and left in 1967. Producer Lenny Warrenker then signed Parks to a contract with Warner Brothers as they embarked on recording a full-length album. Song Cycle was eventually released in 1968. In this episode, for the 55th anniversary, Van Dyke Parks and Richard Henderson, author of the 33 and a third book Song Cycle, reflect on how the album came together. This is The Making of Song Cycle.
1: Hello, this is Van Dyke Parks and I'm here on Dan Nordheim's wonderful podcast and uh, give you all the scoop about the making of Song Cycle over 55 years ago. So I think about the past, it's nice that we think about uh, a 55 year span since the release of my first album, it's good. But uh, I am happy with it, I know I did my best. I. Unfortunately, didn't know why I was doing the album beyond the practicability of learning anything. I didn't want to be approved of or screamed at in a concert. That This was not my thing. I wanted to find what was going on in this incredibly developing technology that offered such studio wonders. Recorded music was coming of age, a golden age of analog we So I staggered around Hollywood for a while in the early 60s. And in 1963, I got my first contract. That was at MGM Records. The first person to call me an artist was Tom Wilson. I was very uncomfortable with that word. I simply was fascinated by the studio. And I decided that this would be a great way for me to get into a studio, go ahead and call myself an artist. So I did that. And uh, I was very happy to have the two... um, Singles on MGM. I saw Steve Stills recently. Hadn't seen him in 50 years in his arc of achievement and uh, He was in my band at that time and we opened for the Loving Spoonful and there was uh, the uh, The Mothers of Invention in which I played a small part, but then I Started busying myself. I busied myself by being a studio musician. I could play written notes on the guitar. I could play guitar lines, or um, or I could play the piano because I'd gone to school to learn how to play piano, play piano or clarinet. I play clarinet when my feet didn't touch the ground. I've studied music. It's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears in the entirety. There's nothing privileged about a discipline in music. It's a life of sacrifice. You learn that. And you learn that with every contract that's thrown at you. And so, I avoided contracts for a while. It was a smart move. Uh, Actually, I was only 20 when I signed my MGM contract, and that's not legal or tender. But I had fun doing it. I learned a lot. And I learned about the positioning of microphones in recording. That became very important to me. All of a sudden, having listened to the music of uh, Les Paul or Mary Ford or Spike Jones, for that matter, and many other pioneers in electronica with acoustic sounds. This would be my fascination. Recorded music was different from live music. Suppose you have a mandolin and then a wall of brass. Well, darn it. The brass might engulf the mandolin. So by repositioning the microphones, which was taboo for some time, uh, we found an entirely new opportunity in the point of view that recorded music can offer an assembly of musicians. So that gave me a lot of understanding. But I, I was a fixture in town, and so uh, producer Terry Melcher started using me as a studio musician, as well as Rye, a cooter, and we were regulars in that in that group. It paid the rent which is really a feat in Los Angeles County, still is. And um, Terry Melcher produced some great rock and roll records. If you like rock and roll, he produced some rock and roll records. And we presented ourselves as Paul Revere and the Raiders, me and Rye and some other studio musicians. It was common to have musicians play for you. And um, I played for the Birds on uh, 5D. And then that... Work with Terry Melcher led to uh, being introduced to Brian Wilson and uh, being cast as a uh, lyricist with Brian Wilson, which shocked me, actually, because my aims were musical. I'm a dweeb, I'm sorry to say it. I don't give a damn about the other stuff. I'm not even interested in how the truck blew up. I'm not interested in so interested in being in love or having lost my love or my truck or anything like that that pertains to the topicality of most songs. And I think the reason that I got the job with Brian Wilson was that I had been playing as a musician in Brian's works in the studio and There came a time to arrange good vibrations to get it done so we could so that I could get more involved because I wasn't really involved with good vibrations. I had been on the floor in the in the middle of good vibrations on a pedal, holding the the pedals down with my hands, because it was easier to manipulate the foot pedals with my hands than with my stocking feet. In the middle of good vibrations, you'll hear a very low organ sustained pedal tone. That's me on the floor. Then I suggested the cello to Brian because I wanted to see if I could get involved with a little more fancy music. We're going to get fancy here. We're going to do, you know, get some strings in here and and that aren't in the group that he's working with. And I was less mindful of the Beach Boys, so was interested in Brian Wilson's development, and my own. So why don't we try a cello? So he says, great. I get to the studio, and there's a cellist, and there's a music stand, and his name was Jesse Ehrlich. And he was uh, sitting there with no music on the music stand, and rather perplexed. And I was in the control room with Brian Wilson, and I had assumed that Brian was going to write some notes for him. Those notes weren't there. So we went to the chorus and I said to Brian, have him play eighth note triplets, secco, dry, dry as a bone, the fundamental of the chord, eighth note, da 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 By my power of observation, I was there, lucky enough to be in the room with this jet. And uh, I said, Arco. Brian went on talkback. He said, Jesse Van Dyke says, Barco. Jesse looked at Brian through the control room window. He said, Barco? I said, tell him with a bow, Brian. So, Arco, it was. So I got myself a, a job as a lyricist because of that. Brian was busy being a musician, a genius. So it was time to put the lyrics on the words. And I did that. And I did it, I would say, without apology. I did a darn good job. So I did my best. I know that. And that is enough for me.
2: I'm Richard Henderson. I'm film music editor and radio broadcaster who wrote the book 33 and a Third Song Cycle for Bloomsbury's 33 and a third series of books about individual albums Van Dyke as you know is from the get-go one of the most eloquent people you'll ever meet in an almost Rococo fashion and he's just a great raconteur and so Brian picked up on this and said uh, you know this is the guy that I want to have do the lyrics for this big project I have in mind this the small project and Van Dyke watched this thing come apart at the seams he had a front row seat for it to the extent that he left the project And then he had to be talked into coming back to the project. And, you know, Brian would cancel sessions because somebody's girlfriend in the lobby was a witch and, like, just really goofy crap. Brian had discovered the big world of better living through chemistry. And to the extent that it wound up fouling up the project, he was just, you know, just chasing his first high all through that. But Van Dyke was was very together. He was, you know, he'd been a pro since he was a kid. You know, he'd been in amalfi and the night visitors on broadway he'd been uh, a semi-regular cast member in the honeymooners on tv he'd been in a movie with grace Kelly when he was in short pants i mean he was like he'd been in the business he knew what it was to function in a business-like way and clearly these sessions were not being conducted in a business-like way you know it was just like okay now we're going to bring a horse in the studio now we're going to set a fire in a pail in the studio and uh, it just it just got weirder and weirder. And also, there was all this pressure from the other guys in the band who just wanted to keep making hit records. And this was not an obvious way to make a hit record. Pet Sounds hadn't yielded big hits. It wasn't like the kind of impact that their surfing and hot rod music had. So this is the life these guys are used to, and here's this new thing that's going to undermine it. They don't want that, and they certainly don't understand it. Columnated Ruins, Domino... What does that mean to people who barely understand surfing? Like, only Dennis surfed. And, uh, you know, the rest of them, just, what the hell? You're messing. And, like, Mike Love's famous quote, don't fuck with the formula. And, and I just couldn't take it.
1: Having spent that stuff with Smile, and it's unacceptable to the Beach Boys, etc., and create all the controversy, because the lyrics all sat on a, on a note. And those notes were different. Those weren't Barbara Ann notes. They weren't Caroline No notes. They weren't I'm Just a Cork on the Ocean notes, which is by one of the great signature lyrics of Brian Wilson himself. Very good lyricist. So I was happy, in a way relieved, to be out of my job as lyricist. And all of a sudden, and then it was time to do an album. And that came through Lenny Warnker having listened to The first song I wrote is called High Coin. When times and places effervesce in words of wonder from down under, I'm no less. I'm fine. It's my time. That was my first lyric. He was absolutely obsessed about High Coin. So he had a fledgling career as an A&R man at Warner Brothers. And I had just been taught everything that Brian Wilson could teach me. And Lenny knew that. But I wasn't signed to a contract. I just did a record with Lenny, one record. It was called Donovan's Colors. But I didn't want to use my name because I really thought I was still reeling from Kennedy's assassination and had a certain reticence about the fame thing seemed to me to be seductive and yet high hazard. So I didn't really need to be known. That was a fact. And so uh, I did a nom de guerre, a name of war. I did a uh, an alias, George Washington Brown. I met him in Peru. Anyway, <laughs> I did a fictitious character, and we threw the record out to no one in particular. College rate FM radio stations at that time were just gaining their provenance. They didn't have any real power. There was very little promotion beyond the $20 bills in the brown bags that promotion men gave to program AM directors. This was a different game. We were learning how a record could be promoted. Nice thing about um, Donovan's Colors that George Washington Brown played, it ended up on a jukebox in Greenwich Village, and a man reviewed the record for a page of the Village Voice. He took a page to explain the phenomenon of this record called Donovan's Colors. Warner Brothers was then told by his article what they were thinking. And what they started to think was that
2: I was an artist. So I got that great contract. They gave him the keys to the candy store, basically. It's like, what kind of budget do you want for this? You got it. I mean, anybody who meets Van Dyke is going to be impressed by the guy. Come on, I mean, then as now. You know, very articulate guy, mannerly, clearly not just some long-haired, bell-bottom kid on the make. He was something very different, and people respond to that in a time where weird was good and weirder is better. You know, that period, the halcyon period, where people like Don Van Vliet, Captain Beefheart, got record deals. So Van Dyke kind of flourished in this hothouse period where unusual Warner Brothers was this interesting terrarium where... Very unusual plants were allowed to grow and were nurtured. So, yeah, that's the start of song cycle. That's, a, side. that's a
3: tape that we made. But I'm sad. Say it never made the grade. That was me. Third guitar. I wonder where the others are.
1: Well, you'll notice that the song that starts the record is called Black Jack Davey. I consider it, like the Tales of Br'er Rabbit, as a Rosetta Stone of American musicological and folkloric value. This is a great piece of music. It's a ballad. It's Steve Young singing that song. That's how it started the damn record. Steve Young was a, a man of merit and deserving appreciation. And also I had a fealty to the folk idioms. That's why Black Jack Davy is there, a real piece of Americana, something beyond my proprietary
2: gain. And uh, this is the way I see the world. Van Dyke always valued Steve Young as an original American, like a really great, genuinely couldn't come from any other country kind of talent, Steve Young. And Van Dyke and he kind of were making the same sort of pilgrim's progress, trying to get their feet on the ground in Los Angeles at the same time. In any case, very interesting guy. And Van Dyke sort of thought that his saga was worth chronicling. Then Randy Newman wrote a
1: song for me. I wanted to get make sure I got a song done. And Randy Newman, who had been uh, taking uh, odd jobs and like, oh my God. Payton Place for TV. And, uh, just a, a, a privileged child of uh, Hollywood uh, aristocracy, the Newman family, and well agented and very talented. So Randy knew that I lived on Vine Street. He knew that I'd, I'd put out a record, an MGM with Beethoven's beautiful Ninth Symphony Chorale, that theme. <laughs>
2: Vine Street.
3: I sold a guitar today. I never could play my jammy.
1: By the way, he did a brilliant, a brilliant string arrangement so graciously conducted by his Uncle Al who would die in three months of emphysema, his Uncle Al who did the 20th Century Fox theme. The strings are sultaste, they're very skinny, you'll notice they're very high. So you hear mostly rosin, it's the absence of of, uh, notes. Yeah, it's nice, isn't it? We used to
3: live there on Vine Street She made perfume in the back of the room And me and my group would sit out in the stoop And we'd play for her The song she liked best to have us play On Vine the-
1: So, he knew that my, uh, my first wife, my squeeze, made perfume in the back of the room. He knew all that, and he threw this biographical wonder at my feet. I played guitar very well, actually. I was alive, but I went along with a gag. And I recorded that.
3: On the street. Bum, desert, market to buy. Tenderfoot up to date. Bombs of the real estate. From desert, off and run dry what i had
1: was coming up with was music of a essentially an acoustic focus, focus on real instruments playing together. That's what I wanted to do. And doing so, I wanted to make sure that the, everything was as demonstrable on by Palm Desert, I wanted to accentuate with timpani, and I got timpani, and believe me, I knew the $125 that went to Cartage for the timpani was not going into my rent. I knew that. A lot of other people were getting record contracts in the gold rush to Laurel Canyon from the Brill Building in, in New York. The musical center had shifted but I didn't go and buy real estate and cars. I put my money into orchestras. And then it goes into, I came west unto Hollywood, and I thought because nudies was making uh, clothes for people like Graham Parson and so forth, there were the grindstone cowboys all over the place. Whole bunch of people, uh, hippies pretending that they knew how to mount a horse and never got saddled. But for that reason, I wanted to really make sure I used all the archetypes available. And that's why the steel guitar is there. It was so fabulous for me. I was not the first to really love this steel guitar in pop. Pop music had employed it. It had crossed the aisle from, from country and rockabilly. But I remember Gary Lewis did something that he used a bunch of steel guitar. And that that was probably the first time I'd heard it in pop music. And I thought that would be a great
2: instrument to center um, Desert. Have you been to Palm Desert? I mean, there's not a lot to write home about. I mean, now it's filled with corporate wellness retreats and crap like that. But at the time, I mean, you could go to be like Grant Parsons and fetishize Joshua Tree and just wander around the desert loaded. But with Van Dyke, it was just like getting away from distraction, you know, just being out there and doing that and getting a song out of it while he was there. But just, just him, bent over a keyboard, working hard with staff paper, which has been his whole life, you know, whether he's film scoring or writing arrangements for someone else's record or working on his own material. He's very much almost a pencil and paper guy, but he is, at core, very much a hands-on, do-your-own-work musician. And I say that, do-your-own-work, because I exist in a forum where film composers are expected to have an army of little Grammys doing stuff for them. You know, like, oh, I'll come out with some, like, right-handed melody. My arranger will turn it into the cue. You know, I'll have these ghost writers doing the cues I don't have time to get to, stuff like that. But Van Dyke, very much that kind of do-your-own-work kind of guy, hardworking guy. So I was in Palm Springs.
1: I came west under Hollywood. I thought about income disparity. I thought about um, a sense of place. I wanted the record to have a sense of place. That's why I did that uh, stomp at uh, in uh, Palm Desert. I wanted to have it be a, a luxurious moment in Southern California, and with a definitely a, an informed optimism.
2: full orchestra really is his canvas I mean he can sit down in a club and play and you know many people have seen him do that I've seen him do it a number of times he can sit down a piano and have minimal accompaniment string bassist and maybe one other person and do a really engaging set but having the full orchestra in the European understanding of that possibility that's his canvas that's really where he feels liberated and can take wing with music and, and do what he wants. Uh, whereas people are waiting for studio technology or waiting for this or waiting for that to make their thing happen, he doesn't really need that. And you get a sense of that in "Song Cycle," despite all the wonderful coloration that Bruce Botnick's recording studio technique brings to the record, it's still a record that's very much composed and arranged in almost you know, German way. I mean, it's it's amazing to that end. So it, it exists in both worlds. It exists in the world of, compos- you know, old-school composition it exists in the world of newfangled, the recording studio, as an instrument. And he was the first who could legitimately lay claim to that, you know, well before Brian Eno, who was always heralded for doing that. So it exists in both camps. That duality makes the record that much more interesting. I got to experience the joy of a discovery.
1: And uh, sometimes it went as expected, often, more often than not, entirely different. So Song Cycle proved that although I I had five years of perfect attendance at Presbyterian Sunday School, but you wouldn't think I'm a Presbyterian after having heard that record. It has no idea how to presage, to understand what's coming next. It's deceptive because it is deceived. It was a tragic age for me. It was post-mortem. I was very much with my brother in his grave. It was brutal. I wasn't communicating anything to anybody. So what did I do? As they said in Lit 101, when I went to school, in Literature 101, they'd say, Write what you know so i wrote about the trauma of my recovery from my brother's death which had just occurred in 63. i was recovering from that and the death of john kennedy and all kinds of nonsense martin luther king and the list goes on
3: as in years of your year, the, the thought of you did find It, it just, just made you to, to discuss, discuss. and in the willows or was it the wind?
1: I really respected my aunt my mother's sister and she was uh
2: laden with cancer, so I decided to write a song for her. And you gotta remember, this is all stuff is all being put on record at a time where people were breaking away from their families. The American nuclear family was considered an obsolescent item. And that California, especially, was filled with people that just took off from their families. Like, screw you, I'm gonna live the way I want to, dress the way I want to, I'm not buying into this Eisenhower era package. And so families, family life, ancestry not a big part of hip culture at all people really divorced themselves from their families at that point in time many people never reconnected with their families they joined harry krishna and disappeared they did a lot of weird things back then and so here's this guy who is speaking a form of english that takes a lot of education to get to he was very articulate very well educated guy whose family mattered to him and he realized the kind of illustrious, one-of-a-kind aspects of his family. His father led a dance band, which also figures into the lyrics of Song Cycle, and his brothers, and I mean the fact that he could play piano when he could barely stand. And they had more than one piano in the house, so they played duets, him and his other family members. You know, family and what came before him was very important to him, and that was something that was not on the table for a lot of people in hip culture in the late 60s. But it was just, you know, your own family, that was something you got away from. And here is Van Dyke kind of delving into this and uh, celebrating it. was a very interesting take on things. You we
3: are all suspect, the mortal door will open the soul by the windows. Widows face the future Factories face the poor
1: Factories face the poor. Income disparity. Yeah, put that in songs. I do. I think about it all the time. I know so many poor people. I only regret that I don't have more to give. That's my only problem on that. I want you to know that I'm grateful for every opportunity I had to explore these. These, they weren't whims. They were psychological survival tools for me at the time. I was a poor boy. I rented. I still have no savings account. I'm 79 and I'm a musician and quite happy in my work.
2: It's evolution. Bannock was somebody who inhabited the past as much as he did the present. And as such, created something that was kind of futuristic sounding. So he took terms that at one point in history, everybody knew what they meant. And, you know, culture just motored on past those terms. And they didn't have meaning for most people anymore. Unless you were a New Englander and owned a certain kind of house near the water, you wouldn't know what a widow's walk was. But again he's taking an architectural colloquialism and then making it literal, talking about widows walking. An extra dimension to the words he's presenting.
3: Can I, is beloved by chance. How, how the shore I've meant, meant to take the, the chance
1: My relationships with Warner Brothers were very problematic. I felt it was insultory. I knew because when Jack Holzman, the head of Electra, came to my house in Laurel Canyon with Judy Collins to ask me what I was doing, and I played them song cycle. He went to Mo Austin, he said, why isn't this out? And Mo said, you know, he said, if you don't want to release it, I sure do, please. I would have had an easier life. Uh, with the New York than in this cow town I would have it would have been okay people weren't so concerned about fucking with the formula it would have been easier but my fun meter I'm telling you the truth it's on 10 I think that that is an elegant record
3: To meet the eating the heart of their companion way back on our canyon. What
1: is up the canyon believe and the sea of death I like the fact that Song Cycle successfully uh reveals an ambience, uh, a refuge an album can offer. Sometimes it has an expositionary feel. Sometimes it doesn't go anywhere. But um, I was happy with it. I was happy with the all golden. Nothing innovative, but a very good diaphanous way of entering it. On which there was a capstan in the tape machine that was going 15 IPS. There was a capstan through which the tape travels. And I decided, on the repeat of the harp, to wrap the capstan irregularly. Boing, doing, doing. You know, so you hear the last... And, and, and that would catch. Now, all of this sounds totally loony, but if you think that I'm crazy, try Stockhausen or go to Esquivel in Mexico, just here, or Bob Thompson, who did many arrangements for me in my later career, to learn how many musicians shamelessly wanted to explore these potentials. They might eventually come to mean something. The
2: Farkle is one of those ideas that a few people unknown to one another had at the same time, or roughly the same time. But mostly the invention of either Doug Bodnick or Bruce Bodnick, depending on who you talk to, the two brothers, both engineers, Bruce also having a much more extensive career in record production, having worked with The Doors and Arthur Lee and Love and people like that. Um, But it's like origami. It's a little paper ring that you fold and fold and fold and fold and tape together and you put it around a tape capstan. The little pinch roller and the rubber roller, the little spinning metal dowel and the rubber roller that's opposite it with the tape in between and those things connect and they make the tape go forward. Well, if you put this little Farkle thing, this, this little origami ring around the pinch roller it causes the tape to wobble like this. Now you can just do it with a plug-in. But at the time, this was very much this sort of mechanical approach. Bruce Botnick uh, has uh, mentioned Barkle. He made
1: up that word when I told him, let's wrap the capstan. Bruce did my record. This is... (laughs) As his career was unfolding,
2: he had just—I think—I think think that he had just done the doors. I always liked Bruce Botnick's credit on the record: "Stereo Compositions," instead of just like recorded and mixed by. Stereo compositions and a great example of Van Dyke's verbal specificity and how he could, with a very few words, open up a whole other realm of consideration for a particular job someone had done on his behalf. Very nice
3: run of the mill, garden variety, Alabama, country fair. Left on Silver Lake, he keeps all apart the top and oriental food store there. He returned from Alabama to see what he could see. Off the record. he is hungry though he works
2: hard and his of well you know it's the horatio alger story in a way someone went west to like reinvent their lives and turn it around for themselves and uh it's very much the admiring portrait of uh van dyke's depiction of steve young and his uh Travails and adventures in getting from where he came from to California and then trying to uh, make a living for himself. But Van Dyke just recognized this, as I said before, this kind of quintessentially American aspect of him.
1: Steve Young was a guy who was, uh, he, Waylon Jennings wanted to be Steve Young. He was a charismatic Alabaman and he had a, a picture of George C. Wallace, who was a racist pig on his wall and it had a Hitlerian mustache and I knew that Steve was a man that just as perplexed as I was about having been born in the South. It was not hip in the uh, foment of all the race riots and the hoses and the dogs and the, and the hangings and the, oh my God. The songwriting form wasn't yet understood by me as a political force that it has become. Bob Dylan came out in 63. Remember that? Beach Boys came out in 63. Rolling Stones came out in 63. Remember that? I do. I was here. I remember when the Brits came over and co-opted our linguistics. I'm from Mississippi. I know what the blues are. I've heard them. This was... Uh, so faux fab faux music. Blues from Britain was something of uh, an irony to me. And it became pocked by the reality that very few black musicians have an opportunity to play the blues in the house of blues today. That's what happened with the branding of the blues. White kids got the woo-woos
2: and took it over. So I avoided the blues. I've stayed cheerful all the time. This is Van Dyke very much conscious of, you know, English interlopers coming in and knocking us all out of business with everything after Beatlemania that, uh, and then the, you know, amplified blues music that was coming out of England in the later 60s and things like that. You know, he was all about being American. So that was Steve Young was kind of the representative of all that stuff for Van Dyke's way of thinking. Mm-hmm. And the All-Golden, a fantastic tribute to him. It's one of the songs from Song Cycle that Van Dyke regularly included in his concert repertoire. I seem to recall hearing an a cappella version of it at one point, which, given how dressed up that song is on record, both with the arrangements and the the mixing treatment of it by Bruce Botnick, it's just a song that is its own little world within those few minutes. And... Uh, Uh, a great piece of writing on Van Dyke Park. The
1: sinking of the Titanic, to me, was a great archetype. It shows the feckless folly of all human endeavor. I wanted to treat it with sobriety and sincerity because this was one of the big blows to me. This This was such an astonishing brutality to me when I heard about the Titanic when I was a kid. That was as big as how they shot the Russian family in Russia the Tsar and his children. Man, I just couldn't understand are the Jews in Dachau. I was deadly serious about this, putting the Titanic in there and showing and celebrating that aspect of uh, my own experience. But um, I had heard somewhere along the line from, I think, the songwriter Jim Ford, happy songs sell records, sad songs sell beer. Well, you know, I didn't have that wisdom when I did Song Cycle. I only had to do what I knew. I had to do what Lit 101 told me. I had to accept the fact that it would eventually be a self reckoning in a way. All the in the That's why there's a Mexican ostinato here. This record to me is as much a musical reference guide as the uh, Howard Zinn's uh, American Encyclopedia. And I really think it's got that capacity to question. And also, it shows great inability, but it shows great desire. And that desire is to serve and to be useful to other people and to entertain. Like Phil Oaks said, my good friend Phil Oaks said, in such ugly times, beauty is the only true protest.
3: So rally around a quiet Jimmy Crow, for I thought I'd like to show they can recall the animal way down in old Mexico.
2: He kind of like flipped the thing where public domain was credited to Van Dyke Parks. Van Dyke Parks was credited to public domain. It was it was just this funny little mind game he was playing at the time. There's no underestimating the significance of mind games at that point in time. I mean, people, especially if they had anything like an education as Van Dyke did, but were also into better living through chemistry. The the whole mind game aspect and let's play these little Joycean games with words and what we could do. Public Domain, very much a part of that. Again, uh, Farkel implementation there on the harp. And again, this construction of a landscape. You know, you can hear the wind through the telephone wires on that one. You know, it's just, it's a very much an environmental piece, as most of the pieces on the record are. They, again, bring up Brian Eno, somebody who has cited Song Cycle as a favorite thing. And actually, in one of his interviews, Eno defined uh, Song Cycle as a record that only other musicians bought. He was, he was very good at summarizing that. He was the source, of course, of that quote about the Velvet Underground. You know, their first record sold 20,000 copies. Every one of those people started a band. Well, for Song Cycle, he's brought that up in interviews too, saying, you know, only other musicians could get that record. That's a record that musicians buy and that regular folks with stereos don't.
1: If you're going to go out there and be bare naked, you know, it's like on, on, on a bucking bronco, you're revealing yourself. You might as well explore these components of personality. And I thought that was important to do. Now, of course, it was very short-sighted of me. I forgot that people might listen to this record. But I'm telling you the truth, as we speak, that was beyond my comprehension. I could not imagine that anybody was going to listen to this. I did variations on the simple tune, a do-re-mi tune called Colors. And I did whatever I could. That was a good clarinet part. And it was just a little visual. It was a tribute to Donovan I felt so sorry for him because everyone said he was a wannabe Bob Dylan. I felt sorry for the guy. I've always loved the underdog, it's a beautiful tune. Why not do it? So I did it, and I thought it was wonderful. When I did Donovan's Colors, you will hear a a marimba. It's called um, Reiterated tremlando. Okay? Marimba. I can't play marimba that well, but I had to. So I recorded the marimba at 7.5 inches per second and then played it back normally at 15 IPS. It achieved an octave. Now, nobody told me Pythagoras wasn't alive, and I'm no mathematician, but nobody told me that doubling the tape speed would create an octave differential. And isn't that great? Donovan's Colors, we were on three-track tape, by the way, sir, three-track, and you could not bounce an adjacent track, so we went quickly from three to four-track, this is why Brian Wilson's got two eight-tracks up in his home, up in the uh, Hollywood Hills, Beverly Hills, actually, so we went to four-track, we bounced three to four, started with the piano, then I concocted this somewhat of an orchestrion I intended. It reminded me of an orchestrion, the ancient Dutch instruments that played band music and so forth, and you'd find them in saloons in the United States, in the Old West. I don't get reactions to songs like, oh, people want to avoid it. Or, you know, one time Ry Cooter gave me a CD. He said, please take this. People are turning it down. You know, they nobody wants a CD. It's true. Nobody wants nothing. They don't want to hear. We've lost the capacity. You know, it's like the shuffle mentality has put us on a kind of like a, a very fast referential schedule. But I don't think people would want to embarrass me or themselves by concluding anything about the work, but I get a sense that it has been a buoyant utility for many people who have been depressed because it seems like if this isn't informed optimism, I don't know what is.
3: close to their fine trials have came to bear some thoughts of the past a little dash of <laughs> <it inaudible> and then I came to see in baggage the memories some truncated souvenirs the war nears I said high light my day
1: Robert Rauschenberg and Jasper Johns both told me that they worked to my to song cycle they painted to song cycle art spiegelman famous for his mouse epic told me i saved his life i mean the song cycle did i can't fathom the degree of proprietary interpretation people would take over the abstractions of the work, but I'm, I'm delighted that that could happen. That's important to me. It's important to me that I know that I'm, I'm no poseur. I can't tell people what to think. I wouldn't do that. But, um, in song cycle, when you listen to it, you can tell the kid is stumbling around. There's an attic looking through his father's war letters. What a Psychologically damaged boy. He must come from a dysfunctional family or something.
3: Your age will most probably carry away the letters. The state
2: hasn't been helping to, to carry on. The Attic is just this kind of sweet and sour of memory and remembering more than you want to remember uh, and how painful that can be. It's kind of an evaluation of nostalgia and uh, a denial of a nostalgia. Very interesting song. At one point with this record, because I just lived inside this record for a long time, in the way I've lived inside few others. But at one point, it decided to let go of decoding things and to let him live beyond interpretation. And I think, in a way, Van Dyke's lyrical content speaks to his own eloquence. It speaks to the way his mind works. Uh, it speaks to his experience certainly, and the experiences of those around him. People like Steve Young, for instance, but. Ultimately, I think to pay him the best compliment would be to allow Van Dyke to live beyond interpretation.
3: Tracks must have beaten it out A mobile pounded from nine to five As round a long line of drivers Wine to dine in the divers And dandy lie One line led in tandem From some new hatchet fields Cracks in the heat then by the for the hackamore crew, View the cracker Bear and then by.
2: certainly Laurel Canyon was a big thing, but not big enough that he couldn't make fun of it. The seat of the beat to meet, and I mean all that stuff, to lampoon it a little bit and think it was a little bit too rank and file for him. I mean he's always gonna be an outsider. But you know, Van Dyke's very always very aware of who's doing what, and he knew that he was there at a special point in history. The format of the whole singer-songwriter thing, which he was in at the get-go of, and the fact that Laurel Canyon was the place to be. People getting signed to big record deals who, before, were living out of a garage. And, and you know, like, people who, because they had the right hair and dressed well, could get deals. I mean, you know, the, you know, this is a balloon, people... We've had gold rushes before. It never turns out well. Okay, something's gonna go up, it's gonna come. Down. I always loved the little like slow tape effect they did on that. Down. The
3: dough. Hey. to me?
1: The heart of their companion way back up the canyon. What is up the canyon when the even event is actually down. The violin, Misha Gudachev, the violinist Misha Gudachev, played at the Balalaika restaurant on Melrose. It's gone right next to Paramount Studios. It was in there that the violinist almost stabbed my mother in the eye when she came to visit me, when I took her to a Russian restaurant. <laughs> a poor immigrant who had nothing else to declare about his opportunity, show business opportunities in L.A. How about it? I insisted that he... <laughs> I'm one of those, some kind of a uh, diminished flourish or something. There is a, uh, uh, on this album, I believe, there is a sense of confirmation to try to confirm people. You know, yes, I think that that's very important. Even like, say, in this, in the present age, in this era of multiculturalism, and you'll note in Song Cycle, I was thinking about it. That's why I had... A balalaika orchestra with five people. Have you ever seen a bass balalaika? Incredible. It's like a huge triangle. It's bigger than a cello. Oh, man. And I had five of those Russians
2: from whence they sprang, had sprang, I don't know. Balalaika players on the record. And that was, again, one of those situations where it's like, let's find... How many bars are empty in this little stretch of the multi-track tape so we can plug in the ball like a player and get out before we erase the thing that we've already got on the tape that's coming up next? I cannot emphasize the riskiness of doing that kind of thing. That was the kind of odds they were up against doing song cycle, trying to fit extra parts in because Van Dyke was very much a creature of the moment. Spontaneous thought that was his engine. And, uh, to, to be able to, oh, I, I found this like a player in a restaurant. We've got to have him on. We've got to have him on this song. And figuring out the little spaces, and they would sometimes jump from track to track to track, just have a continuous part running through the record, but they were out of tape real estate to do anything with. So they have to find these little empty bars, dead bars for the different players to slot in the guy here, there, there. I would not have wanted to be in charge of that. That's like such a high wire act.
1: I was interested in multiculturalism. I am today. And I think if you want to cross the aisle, and we must try either the food or the language. I'm on the food right now. Well, I go to a Korean restaurant. This is a way to learn. The arts will help. But we have this multiculturalism, and, and you can sense that I was in, going in that direction on Song Cycle.
3: A love,
1: a storm, to this love. That was before I exposed my ambivalence about Russia because my brother had been in, in the State Department and died there in the Cold War and I feared Russia and I'm very sorry that Russia has turned out to be the very beast that those right-wing xenophobic republicans in the 50s thought it was. At the time, by the people, the Cuban Missile Crisis was a fresh wound where we were caught in a strategic embarrassment and at risk in a nuclear age. I had come from a childhood of duck, you know, under the desk when you're told, because of the nuclear, people were building bomb shelters. So Russia was my armada. That's what I thought of it. I was worried. it might be some basic problem of under, misunderstanding. That's why I thought about the czar. I just want to use that word. I've always feared the czars, whether they're in record business or anything else. I mean, I learned about Russian brutality. To some degree, I had no idea it was this malignant. It's just very sad. And, and for all I knew, my brother was offed by a Ruski, for all I know. All I know is I had to put his body in the ground, and Dean Russ got his body flown to us so that we could put him in the ground. I'm telling you, this was a compacted caricature of my prejudices about Russia, and I didn't care if it belched. uh, uh, I just remember, (laughs) I remember there were moments of Um, I wanted it to sound Slavic. The Beatles hadn't just had not done back in the USSR. It was squatter's rights. I just wanted to do this thing that illustrated the reality of Russia in the Cold War, for Pete's sake. And I wasn't writing rhinestone cowboy songs, and I didn't care who got laid in the back seat of the truck. I was writing different kinds of songs.
3: And over iron curtain Stuck up on the train, <Joan> The footbridge, the bull rushes,
2: Joe Smith, the president of the company, came in, heard it through, and said, "Song cycle. Hmm. I don't hear the song. And you know, you think you're going to get a good vibrations out of this, or you're going to get something else, and it's just not like that. It's a different kind of record." And, it, and in a way, it paved the way for a lot of records to come. And it was certainly the beginning of that whole thing of like critics' favorites. Favorites that the rock critics that got the records for free loved the records. And the people who had to buy the records didn't know what to make of it. Hence this hideous discrepancy between what the record cost to make and the, and the enormity of the intent behind the record and invention behind the record. Versus this paltry commercial response. I can't tell you what, what a great practicality
1: song cycle turned out for me. And, economically, for Warner Brothers. In spite of their insultory
2: publicity. Well, Stan Cornyn, a real character. He kind of came out of that Playboy magazine, Esquire magazine of the 60s, shag-rug culture... He was one of those guys. He was like a madman. And so he cooked up this idea, he cooked up this campaign based on the fact that it cost a lot of money to make this record, as much money, I think, as any album had been budgeted to that point in history, aside from maybe Brian Wilson's Good Vibration Sessions, you know, like that much money to make a single. So, you know, a lot of money spent on this record by someone who no one knew. And so he kind of started just being very literal about, okay, here's how much we still have to recoup on this record in big, bold Helvetica type across the top of the ad with a picture of Van Dyke from the cover and and like, yeah, it's looking dark for the song cycle and, you know, all this other stuff, kind of making light of how dismal, what a dismal commercial performance this record had um, done to date. So Van Dyke actually chased Corned down in the hallway at Warner's you know, wanting to know if he wanted, was trying to destroy his career. You know, like, oh, here's how badly my record's done. Now the record company's making fun of it.
1: At Warner Brothers, I've been around a lot of heroes. I've met a lot of villains. And I was just glad that they could write me off as a deduction. The U.S. citizens paid for that effort. And then, of course, they charged me the same amount, which was 32000 bucks. They took it up to thirty-seven because they made an album cover that was not acceptable to me. They made an album cover they were going to throw at me called, You Are Now Entering Van Dyke Parks. And I said to them through my attorney, no, they're not entering Van Dyke Parks. It's not going to happen to me. They're not going to do that. Wasn't that glib? So I had to have the artwork changed. That was the first time the art department had been contested. Then here comes Randy Newman. Randy Newman, I get a call because co-produced Randy Newman with Lenny Waronker, his first album, and uh, I get a call from I. G. Newman, Irving G. Newman, my doctor, my doctor, my diagnostician, Randy's father, said, uh, "Get that fucking album." Uh, reprinted. Get that fucking thing reprinted. What are you doing to my son? You're referring to my son as that punchy hoagie Carmichael? That Nazi bastard? Get his name off my son's record. Yeah, the doctor called me, so I had to turn down the art department once again. And I generally left that industry having served as a bureaucrat. I couldn't take it. I did it to get back to work. And enjoy the epiphany moments that I found in, in Song Cycle. To
3: write up the band, from the happy, and other boy, your soul. The song, the forgotten sounds just don't hang us up. Here, hear, 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 the unknown as it hangs. And not far from my heel the tar, baby, feel for the czar. For those who are lonely, well, the Black Sea is calling, in the spawn, and so y'all come really We know we're to the end, in this period of show, say we are not to go. They hasten to jaz a few nations to find us with
2: a That record went through, this shows you how quickly technology was changing at that point in time. And so... He started on 4-track, went to 8-track, wound up on 16-track. But uh, 16-track, I think, came in right at the end of that. And the kind of postscript track at the end of the record, which is just Van Dyke playing piano and singing by himself. It's the simplest thing in the record. And that just occupied... They got 16-track to use. He used two tracks of the 16-track to do that. (laughs) So It's kind of funny. Uh, But yeah, just Van Dyke. And And he described it as... He wanted to seem like someone in the far corner of a room by a window playing piano, and it's, so it has a sort of distant, roomy feel to it. Awesome. Described the setting for it, how we wanted someone in their mind listening to the record to picture someone sitting by a window with a piano watching somebody outside, watching this gardener who I met later. Gardener worked with Van Dyke forever.
1: I studied the Japanese gardener. They're gone. They're gone. There are no more Japanese gardeners. It's all mow and blow and it's Latino. It's all the big gasoline machines, it's the noise brigade. You can't think. I'd like to re-release Song Cycle. However, there are just two components that I'm still looking for Warner's archives. Can't find Potpourri and um, Van Dyke Parks, the sinking of the Titanic. They can't find two components of the piece. That shows a problem in in, uh, archiving. So, as we speak, or as I am heard... This thing called song cycle has been in large part erased. We are many of us of that era are being erased because we don't migrate to new formats or in the absence of a format, a platform.
3: It's not the. To the prime ordeal, the
1: I was disappointed in many ways with Song Cycle because I didn't get what I wanted, but I got what I deserved, and finally. Because I, it became a utility for me. And I then went on to serve other people. And I think if you listen to Song Cycle, if you're tolerant enough, and if you've ever seen a Rauschenberg, I had one hanging on the wall. But you see this pastiche, a collage, as it were. was big. It was fashionable. And it
2: is, to me, pop art. I really think it's got the pop art. He describes himself at the time as a pop artist. He didn't think what he was doing was so different than what Andy Warhol was doing with soup cans or what uh, Roy Lichtenstein was doing with comic book Ben Day dots. He was a pop artist, and he was reflecting a lot of things in culture, especially in his local culture. You know, the culture that prized Laurel Canyon as this sort of hotbed of creativity and the place to be. And you know, he took note of all these things and um, and included them in his, it. Was all grist for his mill. In some ways, listening to song cycle is like twirling the dial on a radio and having it come out musical instead of just Dadaistic static. You know, it's like, here comes a pedal steel, here comes a synthesizer, here comes this, here comes that.
1: I think it is a very a desperately, fiercely optimistic record. And the legacy, I think, is basically its influence on the technology that informed it. I think people learned how to do stuff by my having learned how to do stuff.
2: Well, Song Cycle is a very American record. It's a very forward thinking record, but it's got one foot firmly anchored in the past. Song Cycle represents the confluence of resources and talent and a bull economy in the country at a time when those things met in a way that they. Probably wouldn't meet ever again, but he made something new under the sun, and that's a big reason why I still love this record. Why you know people like Joanna Newsom grab him to work with them, you know, because it has enduring value.
1: But the thing is, I think that everybody senses that whether it would be Grizzly Bear or my beloved, I love that guy from the Fleet Foxes, Robin. Some of these indie groups that say they have been influenced by my work or were aware of it, I think that they understand we have an urgency, which is not cute, to mute. And we need to stay involved in our work and agitate the sensibilities through some way. And I do that in the best way I can. We found out things about the studio and Song Cycle, I think, was, was a positive instrument, even for those who detested its oblivion or pretense. Or one person I remember, isn't it funny? You can't forget it. One person called it the Edsel of pop music. So, this is what I speak of when I speak of the authority of failure. I have received that. Crow tastes fine. I've received that. My joy has been in doing it.
0: Visit lifeoftherecord.com for more information about Van Dyke Parks. You'll also find a full transcript of this episode and a link to purchase Song Cycle. Thanks for listening.